Hopefully. Hopefully this makes sense. Hello everyone, welcome back to Hopefully This Makes Sense. Today I'm going to be talking about a topic that I actually think is really cool and something I did not understand for a very long time and that is how computers work. So okay, I know what you're probably thinking, computers are just big magic machines and that's that. Fair. Yeah, very fair. And for a long time I felt the exact same way, so we're going to dive into this topic together. And in order to understand how computers work, I want to start by digging into the circuitry that allows computers to operate. Or even smaller yet, we're going to talk about electrons. That's what moves through the circuit to power it. So electrons are kind of like alpha males. See, alpha males tend to hate each other. So as a result, they tend to move towards areas with fewer alpha males. Electrons do the same thing. So I want you to think of a light switch. Before you turn on the light, it's like trapping a bunch of alpha males in one room. When you turn on the light, you're basically opening the door to a hallway. Immediately, all of those alpha males are running out of the room into a room with less alpha males in it. Conveniently, as they go, they run through a light bulb and that energy is converted into light. Now, thankfully, electrons are a lot more predictable than alpha males, so we know that this will happen all the time and there's not just that random instance where they all become bros. So, okay, that, that makes sense. It's just human behavior. But a physical switch is a lot simpler than a computer. So let me try to introduce you to a circuitry element that we call a transistor. A transistor is a switch that is turned on and off by electricity. It operates with three main chambers that are differentiated by how their, charge, how their charges can move. So I'm going to give you an analogy. I want you to imagine that you have a group of alpha males and excuse my heterosexual analogy here, a group of females in three rooms and they're doing speed dating. In the first room, only the guys can move. Each girl will stay in the exact same chair the whole time. In the middle room, only the girls can move. The guys stay in the same chair. And in the last room, only the guys can move. See, these rooms aren't locked, but because they're are a neutral and stable number of people, number of girls and boys to balance. Nobody moves between them unless we alter the balance of the room. So let's say we tell some of the guys in the middle room that it's time for lunch and we take them out of the room. With this, all the guys in the first room are like, damn, there are girls over there who don't have guys and they're just wandering around. So that balance is offset and they walk into the middle room. See, there's a bunch of guys who didn't make it into podcast speed dating. So as each one of the guys leaves the first room to check out what's going on in the middle room, a new guy is added. They can't stay in the middle room because each of the chairs in the middle room is already assigned. So they'll just wander into the last room. Now, as more guys enter the last room, the guys who were originally in the last room are like, F this, I'm out, there's way too many guys in here and they leave, they walk out of the door. That's how transistors work. So you remove some of the mid or some of the negative charges from the middle semiconducting material, and you're essentially opening a gateway for electrons to move and complete the circuit, just like a switch. So our version of taking the guys from the middle room and bringing them to lunch is attracting them with a positive energy source. Okay, so that's a transistor, basically a switch, but it's operated by energy. And now that you have a bit of an idea of how a transistor work, 
I want to introduce you to a concept called logic. No, not the rapper, electrical logic. <laughs> See, electrical logic consists of tiny elements that turn on or off based on a set of rules. To explain this, we're gonna go back to our alpha males example. So let's say we have all of the alpha males in the room and I told you that I wanted to be extra sure that none of them left. So I'm going to install two doors. I only want them to be able to leave if the first and the second door are both unlocked. So what we'll do is we'll install one door in the room, make a hallway that connects it to a second door, and those are our two doors. So now if one door is open, they can't get out. If another door is open, they also can't, but if both are open, then they can leave. Okay, that's a little morbid. So let's think of a slightly less morbid example. And let's say in this case, I wanted them to be able to get out if either the first or second doors were unlocked. In this case, instead of having a hallway connecting the two doors, we would just put two doors in the room so that if one door was open, they could get out, if or if another door was open, they could get out. These build logic gates. The first case is called the AND gate. So they can only leave, or the switch can only be turned on if both the first and the second signal are on, AND gate. The second example gives us the OR gate. The signal is turned on if the first signal is on or the second signal is on. See, these cases, each door is a switch or potentially the middle room's lunch door of a transistor. You can imagine how this would work in a circuit. There's also a NOT gate. And so we can actually build this if you think of going back into our dating game. Pretend that our overflow room of a bunch of guys who didn't make it into the first room is our output. See, if the guys in the middle room are at lunch, the waiting line goes straight into the first room. So the signal is off, the output is off. But in the reverse scenario, if nobody is going from the second room to lunch, everyone stays put and the entire line of guys goes into the overflow room. So in that way, you can see how we can build a NOT gate using our transistors. So if our original signal is on, it's turned to off. And if our original signal is on, it's turned to off. Or off is turned to on. You know what I mean. So OK, light switches, transistors, logic gates, yawn. How does this all work? So you can see how transistors, configured in different ways, can make our three basic logic elements. So let's take one of the simplest computers that we have, a basic calculator. To start, I want to break down each of our numbers from the decimal system to binary. If you listened to the previous podcast episode, this will be easy, but for everyone else, I'll break it down again. Our number system works in a base 10 system. What does that mean? Well, any number from zero to nine is one digit. You add one to nine and you no longer can have one digit to define your value. So you add another digit and you get 10. 1, 0. 1 is in the tens value and 0 is in the ones value. There are a lot of other systems out there. Uh, for example, the hexadecimal system, or 16 numbers. So instead of adding a digit um, when it's 1 to 9, yielding 10, you actually get A. So you count from 0 to 9 and then A all the way through F. Now in the hexadecimal system, when you add one to F, you get one zero. 
See, this 10 means a completely different number than the 10 that we typically think of in decimal. In this case, you've got one value of the 16s and zero values of ones. So you actually have 16, but it's just a representation. And in this case, one zero means 16. We're very used to the duodecimal system, for example, which is base 12. In this case, you add one to 11 and you get a dozen. So you can see how this would work in different settings. Our computers use a binary or base two system. So in this case, zero is zero, you add one to zero and you get one. But if you add another one, you get one zero instead of two. One in the twos and zero in the ones. If you add another to your one zero or 10, you get one one. If you add another, you get one zero zero or a hundred. So if I wanted to add two numbers in binary, let's see if we can do this using logic gates and we'll work it out together. So if you add one to zero, so the first signal is one and the second signal is zero, you get one. This could be thought of as the OR gate. If one door is open, you get a one. If the other door is open, you get a one. But if both doors are closed, you get a zero, which makes sense. But this fails when you consider the option of both signals being on. So if you have a one and a one being added together, you get one zero in binary. See, an OR gate in this case would still give you a 1, which is wrong. So what about using that other option we thought of, an AND gate? That would work well for our second digit, but not for our first, meaning it would work for the tens digit, but not for the ones digit, or sorry, the twos, you know what I mean. So if we combine our previous gates, maybe we can build something that will account for this. And in this case, we're building what we call an exclusive OR gate. See, an exclusive OR gate, kind of like how it sounds, only works if either the first signal or the second signal are on, but not if both are on. So how can we build this exclusive OR gate out of our previous gates? Let's think of an A and B input. We're gonna take two AND gates. So the first AND gate, we will place a NOT gate in front of the first input or the A input. So in this case, if A is on, the AND gate will interpret it as OFF and vice versa. This AND gate will only be on if our A input is OFF and B is on. So we'll take our second gate now. And instead of inverting the A input, we're going to invert the B input. So our second gate will only be on if A is on and B is off. So now we have two output signals. The first output will be on if A is off and B is on. The second output will be on if A is on and B is off. Otherwise, the outputs are both off. So either of these options works for an exclusive OR gate. But we also need to include both. We can't just have one or the other. So we're going to have one output signal taking those two and building an OR gate between them. So now we have 
either A is on, B is off, or B is on, A is off, meaning you have an exclusive OR gate. So we're going to use this exclusive OR gate to build our two-digit adder circuit. We'll use an exclusive OR gate to control the first digit. If you add 1 and 0, or 0 and 1, your first digit should be a 1. But if you add 1 and 1, the first digit will be a 0, which is exactly what happens with an exclusive OR. But if you add 1 and 1, what about the second digit? So we'll include what we call a carryover digit and control it by an AND gate. So, just as we talked about in the beginning, it'll work perfectly fine. And what we'll do is combine these and build an adder. So, what did we just do? We managed to add two single-digit numbers in binary using six transistors. I know that was a little bit complicated, but I promise you we're getting to the point. Now, with enough AND and exclusive OR gates combined, we can actually add any binary digit. See, the more digits, the more gates we need. You can also build other types of adders or different operations. You can build a multiplication circuit for binary numbers using AND gates and exclusive OR gates as well. Same goes for subtraction and division. So remember how I said each of those are just an arrangement of transistors? An old school calculator contains about 250 transistors. Each operator, so clicking a, a multiplication or an addition or subtraction, determines which pattern of transistors your inputs go through. If you press a number, for example, you're basically pressing a switch that turns on the equivalent binary circuit values. So if you input the number 3, which is 11 in binary, it just opens the first two binary circuit elements, changing them from off to on. Everything else remains off. And there you go. That's how an old school calculator would work. But these calculators are pretty different from computers. Well, Transistors are also responsible for the majority of processes that a computer does. So you've probably heard the word processor or processing power when buying a computer. And for a lot of you, you had absolutely no idea what it meant, but you knew that more was probably better. You're right. The processor is a chip that holds a bunch of transistors. The Intel Core i5, which you may have heard of, it's just a chip with a bunch of transistors on it. So you remember how I said that the more transistors you have, the more operations you can do? Well, the world's first computer had about 800 transistors in it. The 1970 Intel 4004 processing chip had 2,250 transistors. What about the Intel Core i5? It's a square chip about one and a half inches in width. I'll give you a second to think about how many transistors you think it has. Take your guess. Have you settled on it? All right, 1.4 billion. And you're probably like, no way, how? It's like one and a half inches squared. Well, yeah, but our technology has advanced so far that now we're able to put so many transistors on a chip, which means that we're able to do more processes faster. So let's explain how this all works. The higher level code or the pretty operating system 
that you see is just a front for what I said, higher level code. That's what most programmers use and it's pretty easy to understand, um, but this will then be digested and broken down into a more complicated, harder to use type of code. We call this lower level code and most programmers hate it. That code is then broken down into a series of zeros and ones. Each of those zeros and ones feeds into a circuit with a bunch of transistors, which perform the stuff that we often think of as magic. The transistors, the way they allow us to perform processes and the way humans have geniusly combined them to make logical operations possible, that's the magic. See, there's a bit of a sad ending to this. As humans manage to put more and more transistors onto chips, computers, phones, and basically everything with a chip became faster and faster with more processing power. But there's a limit. There's a point at which it is physically impossible to add more transistors to a chip. The idea that every year computers would become faster as we learned how to put more and more transistors into a chip is a concept called Moore's Law. And it was created by Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel back in 1965. He then revised it in 1975. He predicted that in the 2010s, we would reach the limit and we would no longer be able to rely on advancements in transistor construction as a mainstay for computing power. He was right. The advancement of computing power is reaching a plateau. So what does this mean for us? Well, for the average person, it means that computers aren't getting much faster over the next 10 years. But for someone in tech, like me, it's actually kind of exciting. When we can no longer make money by repeating what's been done, it forces us to think differently. It paves the groundwork for new breakthroughs and new types of innovation. So let's summarize all of this. You can build a switch using and controlled by electricity simply by controlling which elements, whether it be the electrons or the protons, can move inside of this chip we call a transistor. We can combine those transistors in different patterns to build an addition type of circuit or a multiplication or a subtraction, division, etc. And the more ways that we combine them, the more operations we can do. Combine enough transistors and patterns and you get a computer with billions of transistors you are able to perform all of the cool operations that we see on a day-to-day. -day. So yeah, that's how a computer works. Thanks for listening, see you next week, and hopefully this all made sense. Bye.